Have you ever wanted a bit more positivity in how we talk about the agency business? Or maybe some fresh ideas for how you and your agency can thrive? If so, you're in the right place. Welcome to the immortal life of agencies. This is the podcast that celebrates the visionaries and changemakers who are actively future-proofing our industry. You'll hear from the leaders who've been there, done that, and are happy to talk about the t-shirt, even if it's a bit grubby. Sounds good, right? In each episode, you can expect short, sharp conversations with some of the biggest, broadest, and deepest thinkers in our industry, and a bunch of practical takeaways that you can apply to your own agency today. So in short, expect untold stories of progress, always optimistic and never dull. Welcome to the show. If you're interested in agency talent, and if not, why not, then you're going to love today's episode. I'm speaking with none other than Faris Yakub, big thinker, author, and co-founder of Genius Steels. They're a nomadic strategic and creative consultancy. Now, I stress the word nomadic because that's partly why this episode is so fascinating. Faris and his wife, Rosie, are effectively the poster children for freelance consulting. They've become a kind of lightning rod for everyone's frustrations with agency life. They're constantly asked, how do we get into this freelance consulting life? So we talk about how agency life kind of sucks for a lot of people, and particularly what agency CEOs must do to compete with talent's need for freedom. What do people actually want from work these days? And how do agencies need to evolve to be the beacons they need to be to attract the very best people around? So let's dive in. Hello, Faris, and welcome to The Immortal Life of Agencies. Hello, Robin. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here, mate. Very, very pleased. So uh, let's get into it, shall we, straight away? Um, My question to you is based on something that you said in a a conversation we had previously, which was that being in a senior agency role sucks. So just tell me more about that. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you for that that very uh, frank opening question, Robin. And also, I want to credit you with your ability to remember conversations when I'm ranting at like 90 words a minute. But um, yes, so I think there are probably three things from my point of view that really sucks about senior agency leadership. Um, the first one is intrinsic. It, it is, it's extremely stressful. As a job, it's inherently stressful. You're managing extremely diverse groups of personalities and within other structures, you're managing obviously clients and holding companies and or investors at the same time. That's the nature of scaled businesses. They come with a lot of consequence and complication. I think that leads to the second challenge, right? Which is when I became C-suite, I was in America and it's hard to overstate the difference between um, America and English advertising industries just because at a basic level, scale is so different. So when I went to McCann to be in my first senior leadership role, there were over a thousand people in our agency and nearly 2000 in the building, if you included Universal and MRM. And that communication challenge, that management challenge was completely beyond my understanding of how to, to do. I just, it, it, I started out emailing the entire agency, just going, hello, I'm here and I'm here to help you with the internet and stuff. Um, and like, you can't email the whole agency. I'm like, well, how else do you communicate to people within this system? They're like the SharePoint. I'm like, I don't think anyone uses SharePoint. So that seems like a waste of time. So like, a, it's a pure kind of skill-based challenge that I'm not very good at. I like being, I think, a semi-practitioner, mentor, counselor, coach, and so on. Um, I was better at that. I was better at the mentoring aspect than I was at the kind of fiercely political 
commercial end of the business. Um, one of my first experiences within a very big agency was we lost a giant piece of business. I assume it wasn't immediately my fault. I just got there, but you know, I'll take some responsibility uh, for not saving it, I suppose. And uh, like 200 people out the door straight away because that's what America's like, employment at will. And clients are so big, you have one client usually. You just work on one client. There's hundreds of people working on one client. So that, that's kind of brutal. I don't emotionally um, have the capacity for that kind of thinking and that kind of stuff. And it also led me to sort of realize that like org structure and internal knowledge management and internal communications are extremely hard. And how you do that at a sort of client level company, I have no idea, but we talk a lot about it with clients because it's so big and trying to communicate strategy, let's say, broadly across a whole company is such an interesting challenge. You've got to reduce it down to something so simple. Otherwise, nobody will really be able to repeat it back to you, which is kind of hopefully the need, right? And there's a certain point where a company hits a level of scale where it's like you can call it peak productivity, possibly peak productivity paradox if you wanted to be annoying. But there's a certain point where you spend more effort and energy and time managing the internal system you work within than doing the work that that system nominally produces for external customers. Especially as you get more senior, that's more and more of your job, essentially, is to manage the system of itself. And a lot of effort goes into managing. And if you're an agency of 1,000 people, trying to get anything done is quite complicated, even though it should be much easier. It's hard to know what people are even doing. You know, it's hard to know how that even works. So that's, I think, the three parts that made it very hard for me. From a very personal point of view, and this is a point of like, I don't like the way jobs work. Um, I don't think they suit me or a lot of people. Uh, the sort of everyday bit of it doesn't seem super healthy for the creative industries. I mean, I know that's what jobs are like. I understand this. But I think there's a conversation being had with people like Make Work Not Better and the, the sort of the time-based sort of ownership that jobs come with, to me, never felt super great. And I'll finish off this tiny section with... So uh, one of the agencies I was at in New York, I was on the board or the executive leadership team, I can't remember. And our board or ELT meetings went in on Sundays weekly because we were too busy during the week with other meetings to have the meeting to manage other meetings. And I was like, this can't be how it's supposed to be. I just don't think that's right. So, Faris, I mean, that is such a, a rich answer. There are a million and one leaping off points for us in there. I suppose the thing for me that sparked my curiosity most, I guess, as well as the work you do, you're also well known for working with with your wife, Rosie, and, and not actually having a place to live. So you move around the world, the world and you, you go where the work is. Um, it sounds like you've made a very conscious choice to sort of step away from sort of jobs, if you like, as you've described them, and do something else. Just tell us about the sort of inception of that, that lifestyle shift. Sure. Um, and not to bury the lead, but it's recently changing dramatically. But um, working in New York is a particular kind of working. There's a lot of money in New York. It's a very large scale set of businesses. And it leads to a certain kind of environment, particularly at the sort of very top levels where the air is very thin and uh, anxiety inducing, in my opinion. But um, I, I essentially 
like thinking about my life in chunks, I suppose. Um, I never had the intention of being in one place for my entire adulthood. Uh, I just didn't know what that looked like. And after five years in New York, I was uh, extremely happy with the life in New York and very tired of working there. And I thought, well, time for a change. And I'd been pitching Sydney to Rosie kind of passively for a while because I'd lived there previously. And it's a much more, um, it's a very different culture in, in advertising. Um, or it was when I worked there 15, nearly 20 years ago. Um, but generally, I just thought a bit of change of scene is good because if the job is the same, I'd like to have change of scene. That way my life has some novelty, variety, you know, complexity, which keeps my brain alive and keeps me thinking and stuff. But it was a sort of also a latent desire to, you know, get my gap year, which I didn't have a gap year or a year of traveling. I wanted one, I think. And so I sort of pitched it as a six month sabbatical um, on the back of a proposal for marriage, which made it harder to refuse the complicated secondary part, I think. <laughs> it's like clever, very clever. So I proposed on top of a pyramid in Belize because I wanted a really short proposal story, one sentence, evocative image at the time. Um, and so we started traveling that way with the intention of not working quite specifically. Like I wanted to create these breaks relatively quickly after we became, I guess, free agents, we started to get approached by people for sort of various pieces of work. And we were sort of thinking about it and it's good being able to choose work on your own terms. I suppose I, we came to this kind of codification of our beliefs over time, but eventually we would find things that made sense for us to do remotely without kind of time zone management, status call stress every day. And at the end of the sort of six months or whatever year it turned out to be, we had kind of broken even. So Rosie suggested, let's turn that into a business and see if we just keep doing it. It was really her uh, observation. And I never really wanted to run a business that much. Uh, Rosie calls us accidental entrepreneurs because it seemed really hard and highly risky and stressful. And also there's a lot of, as you well know, Robin, running a business, half of it is doing the, no, it's like the same problem as before with management, right? Half of it is, maybe a third of it is doing the work. And then the rest is running the business and marketing the business. That's kind of how businesses work. <laughs> but we had to learn a lot about running a business and marketing our own business, uh, despite my kind of slight British reticence to, you know, actively sell myself in the marketplace without anything beyond my kind of abstruse thinking but it just sort of happened and, and nomading at the time was the thing almost maybe yeah yeah but it was kind of an early stage version of it and things had things weren't quite in place yet but uber and airbnb had begun to exist and it began to make things easier um and bandwidth became more reliable uh in the course of that 10 years you can sort of assume decent bandwidth in most places now, whereas before that wasn't a fair assumption. Uh, for, for video calls and such, that was something that was, you know, it was... There's still a lot of blackouts and various things in islands. That's just the way it is in islands. But that's part of the charm, I think, of working with us when we were doing that, is that clients were like, oh, they had a blackout because they're on an island off the coast of India or something. That's very exciting. Nice, nice. Well, I think there's, there's something very, um, I suppose, pertinent if you're running an agency these days, frankly, of any scale. I suppose the, the further up the food chain you go, um, you know, back to that rarefied air in New York, if you're running uh, an agency where um, I suspect younger people, and this is, I don't know any numbers to back it up, you may have this, but 
increasingly younger people will be looking at lifestyles like yours, not necessarily yours personally, but and thinking, do you know what, why can't I have that? You know, the concept of a job, the concept of job security. Um, so I think it's probably some value here. And I'm just unpacking that kind of what is, I'm thinking about what does an agency chief exec and an HR director, head of people, head of talent, what are they thinking about? What are those, um, what are they competing with in terms of, you know, what the, the workforce wants? It's a big question, right? It's a huge question. Um, there are three, th- I used to say when I was someone's boss or, or manager or mentor, so there's three things you should be getting. One of three. And if you're not getting one of those three things, you should change jobs immediately. You should be either having a lot of fun, making a lot of money or learning a great deal. Any of those three things is fine because that'll get you going through a couple of years of job, no problem. But if you're not getting any of those three, then that's a problem. And I think historically, even when I was entering the industry, sliding out of management consultancy, part of the appeal in the late 90s, early noughties, was still the kind of halo glow of the 80s ad man construct that was sort of the glamorous professional service where you could wear trainers and be cool and, and generally, you know, have a more relaxed um, demeanor. Having been made to wear a suit in my prior consulting job and shave every day, I was like, this is fun for a very brief period. It was fun for like a week and a half, maybe. And then I'm like, this is not that fun, I think. Um, these shoes hurt my feet. I should, you, know, you can't afford good shoes and, and suits when you're a grad. So it's like um, <laughs> bad socks. Anyway, so I thought it looked, so, so I thought it was, I thought it was, people thought it was cool. And the coolness allowed us to get away with a lot as an industry. That's no longer, I think, exactly the case, or at least not enough of the case to compensate for the massive pressure on margins that's led to a massive increase in time and urgency and stress and productivity for junior employees in order to make back the business models inefficiencies. Talk about the business model inefficiency. I can't let that one pass. Hmm. So, I mean, obviously the business model is the biggest challenge our industry faces in some senses. I mean, this is like thinking that's been around for such a long time, but it's like, at its basic, most basic level, selling time puts you in opposition to your clients. If you sell the amount of time it takes to do something, you're inherently motivated to take longer to do it. Otherwise, your company will make less money, which is bad for you. So you're set up to be in opposition to your clients in terms of speed, agility, and so on. If you're going to sell time, you've got to be rigorous about it, like law firms, like my friends who work at the biggest law firms in the world, the, you know, Golden Circle or Holy, whatever it is. They have six minute incremental timers that they have to allocate time to every hour. Like every six minutes, they have to allocate time to a client. And they charge a lot of money for that time because they have these, you know, qualifications that are barriers to entry to an industry that prevents them from competing broadly so they can charge more money. And Anyway, so there are conditionalities that allow for lawyers and, and financiers to some degree to make, um, or accountants, I suppose, or auditors maybe, um, to make money at a very decent multiple of, of revenue or you know overhead um, with a time-based business model. It doesn't work massively well for us anymore, and that's been a challenge for a while. Um, so, so things happen like clients want a flat rate across talent. That's been a negotiation I've been part of. That means that it's, it's bad for the agency to put senior talent on the, on the team. 
at any point in the thing. It just makes, it bleeds money. Or, you know, uh, they want to pick apart the different pieces of the agency offering. So it's like, I don't want the strategy. Just give me some ideas that happens. And that kind of thing is frustrating if you're a strategic thinker of some kind. Um, but I think most importantly is that specifically creative agencies, they don't have economies of scale. They get more expensive the more the larger they become because there's no efficiency to adding more people to a complex system that makes it harder to internally communicate and sort of it, it's not entirely fair because you can go for bigger clients obviously and bigger clients you can charge more money for but the whole billing structure is somewhat confusing now and there's a lot of pressure on what is weirdly insultingly called non-working media or non-working money in america which means the fees that we pay agencies instead of you know so i just think it's like charming isn't it it's it's just a term that really stings every time you see it i'm like feel like i was working i i don't know but well let, let's go back one stage you mentioned your earlier career where you started in your um your, your cheap suit and your cheap shoes um in uh, in management consultancy i mean again it, it feels like for at least the last 15 years our industry has been arguing amongst itself as to whether management consultancies would be the savior and, and buy our indies and make us rich or whether they would be coming along and, you know, uh, becoming, uh, sort of our, our biggest competitors. And I don't think largely any of those have happened to a particularly exciting degree. Um, but I mean, you've been there, you've worked in those spaces. Um, you know, what learnings can you, uh, suggest from your time in management consultancy that agency leaders would be, uh, well-placed to adopt? So there's two bits, I guess. One, which is consultancies are very, very good at providing substantiation in a way that provides comfort to senior leadership and financial people. They're very, very good at manufacturing frames of evidence that seem extremely business-oriented, that seem rigorous based on a great deal of um, breadth of experience across the world, across, you know, consultancies say, oh, 74% of the fortune 500 are our client base and that's like in advertising impossible because of conflict whereas in, in consulting it's like a good thing which is an interesting way to have expertise it's like well that makes sense right um so i think it's been from the point of view of a consulting operation like you sell very expensive powerpoint slides if you do anything else you aren't consulting you're an integrator or something else right you are doing the software installation piece, this, the systems integration piece, they are technology products. At a pure level, consulting operates at a extremely high margin, basically. Like extremely high margin, because it's just very smart people thinking about stuff, making very complex slides. And as you know, if you've read anything about McKinsey, they sell slides for a great deal of money. They're very, very, very good at it. And um, those slides can change industries and change, to some degree, the health of an entire country, unfortunately. But so the, the consultants are coming has been a clarion call in advertising in the UK since at least mid 80s, I'm pretty sure. Maybe 90s. Definitely. I mean, maybe after the Anderson split. I don't know. So like, we've definitely been worried about it for a while because, you know, we all compete in the same market, which is professional services, right? We compete for commercial advice and implementation that makes companies, companies make more money. So ultimately, we're all in the same market. And historically, we could differentiate ourselves by being 
the thing they couldn't present to be. They couldn't present themselves as being creative. It wouldn't make sense for their primary business in some senses. And the rigor they bring is a function of the way they dress, what the tools they use, how they think, the the, the codification of strategic practices and analytical models and so on. These things give you a sense of seriousness and credibility at that level. Whereas ad agencies historically represent something else. They represent culture, kind of the unknown potential for exponential growth, that kind of thing. And because of that, they were allowed to be very different. As the pressure has increased to make granular the evidence that kind of produces budgets at the end of the year, that granularity has proven to make things slightly difficult, I think, in various ways. Uh, thanks, Faris. I think there is, um, again, there's so much richness in that answer as well. I think the one thing that, again, I'm curious about coming back to you and, and what you're known for and uh, particularly the challenges that CEOs face in kind of bringing great talent into the business and increasingly keeping great talent, not just in the agency, but also in the industry, the the, the sort of attraction of the, the freelance life has kind of never been more compelling, right? As I imagine you get asked all the time, how how do I be freelance like you? How do I create this lifestyle that that you and Rosie have built? Yeah, um, I'm sure it's not all a bed of roses, but uh, you know, if people are asking that, what uh, <laughs> what would advice would you be giving to the agency leaders to uh, kind of combat that that you know talent drain ultimately? So I think that the key areas that we've seen, um, apart from the obvious things about kind of pressure on time and urgency and weekends and the sort of you know commitment to the pitch which is maybe a little bit uh, whatever systemic problems i think agencies are great because you can learn things there and that's really 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 important if you want to go freelance it's extraordinarily important plus you meet people there that's also really really important if you want to go freelance in my opinion so people coming out of school approach me and rosie all the time and say how do we do what you do and i'm like i don't know how to do that me and Rosie together are a unit that happens to be quite functional, both in terms of life, travel, and work. That's one condition that I can't help you with. Two, work for 15 or 20 years in an industry, ideally all over the world, ideally within as many companies as you possibly can, and make everybody like you as much as you possibly can, and do lots of really good work. That really helps, because then once you've done that, People have heard of you or know you from working with you. And then when you, things come up that you're good at, they will call you or email you. That's how I think it's all. So uh, it's difficult now because agencies are brands and agencies, some are cool and some, if you put them on your CV, will make your job prospects better in the future. And you know which ones they are and they change. But like if you've been at certain shops, that will be like a sort of, uh, status mark to pet, like it's like to pet, like in England, like which university you went to, a similar kind of status mark. Cause we're you know, <laughs> like that. Um, but so, so I think Mary Baskin, who was one of the early great mega planners of our generation, maybe the one slightly above mine, she, she sort of left JWT global planning director in 2000, set up Basking Shark. And you know, she's great. She's amazing. Um, she wrote this wonderful article for, I think, the Irish IPA. And it's like 10 reasons to go freelance, 10 reasons not to. And a big part of it is, ideally, you want to become an independent agency and take on risk, because that's what you're doing. You're taking on risk in exchange for freedom. You're buying 
your time back off yourself, off your employers, by taking on a vast amount of risk in terms of your income stream. And that's that's what it is. That's what you're doing. It makes more sense to do that if viable when you have leverage, as in when you can charge more money for the same thing than other people. Otherwise, you're competing in a sort of commodity freelance world as an art director, copywriter, strategist. If you don't have, you know, awards and profiles and various things like that, like it's a much harder job, basically. That's why people like us often write books. We need that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. So I can almost feel the skeptic in me coming out here where it's almost like the very things that uh, an agency would need to provide for its employees um, to keep them stimulated, to keep them growing, to keep them enjoying their jobs are the very things that, uh, you know, if you were to design the perfect prep to go freelance or to launch your own agency, uh, it's, the base, it's the perfect grounding for that. And I guess that's just the nature of the beast, right? This is the the place that we find our industry in where a lot of those you know, certainly the larger agencies, you've talked about scaling being problematic. Those are the fundamental challenges that they face. Um, I would argue that agencies will adapt and that they will find ways of continuing to be innovative. It's just shifting market dynamics and that's always been the case. Agreed. I'm, t- I'm totally curious on kind of what makes you most optimistic about the future of agencies? I think it's a combination of things. I mean, I think to your point, agencies always survive to use, I think, Rory Sutherland's term. They, 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 they're, they're unkillable in some ways because there's always going to be somebody who needs help with something. And that thinking is often going to be creative because the nature of corporate entities, by their very definition, the bigger they get, the more conservative, the more internally facing they must become, right? So that's always going to be necessary. The, the business model problems are interesting. They've been in place for at least 20 or 30 years at this point. So it suggests there's a slight degree of intractability here. But I think to your point about the the other side of experience is um, not being confused by what you know to be true about the industry. People that start agencies from scratch, I think probably have an opportunity to not assume all the inherent cognitive habits and business model thinking of advertising agencies, so that, that there's definitely advantages to both, I would say, in some senses. You know, people that don't know what they don't know can often do things that a lot of us that know what you can't do um, won't be able to do. In general, though, I think there's two levels of opportunity. One, which is like what we do as an industry is now in direct competition with about five other pieces of the world business-wise, right? In, in, in Porter's Five Forces classic way. Like consultancies, as you said, the, the technology platforms that have in-house agencies, the cu- clients have in-house agencies, media studios that produce content or uh, ideas, events for brands. There's a lot of competition, which puts pressure on the sector to, to your point, evolve and innovate itself because it has to differentiate what it does in some specific set way. In fact, a lot of work we do with agencies is about this. How do you put position that the agency uh, with a point of view about how brands work and what you do best that is profitable for you because it provides like some form of appeal to the market, right? But I think the, comp- the competitive set expanding means that the role, the options for agency folk are equally expanding. But by the same token, they're all wanting the same people. And for a long time, at least the last 10 years until recently, until the tech lash, the, the route for senior agency folk who wants to make even more money would be to go to tech companies and, you know, 
run some strategic sales function or creative agency within that tech company, you know? So that's cool. I think to your point about, or my point originally, but your point that you mentioned about flexibility, I think that's the thing. Like I'm out here on my deck. Um, so I'm not a nomad anymore. I bought a house, just to be clear. Um, <laughs> I don't live here all the time, but we are moving in slowly because after 10 years of doing anything, I wanted to do something else. And um, now we're doing this and it's a very exciting new adventure. But uh, flexibility is hugely important. I think flexibility for people in terms of geography, in terms of time, um, is a very hard thing to manage in terms of office and rent and collaboration and so on. And as I said before, the huge value of young people in agencies is to learn osmotically things you can't learn from books, um, of which there are many. But I think, as I said originally, the world of going into an office five days a week does not suit me and it doesn't suit many people. And I think a lot of those people overlap in advertising. I think ad people especially tend towards not wanting to be in a in the office every day. And it's not healthy either for them, in my opinion. Like you need to constantly be filling up the um, the creative font. The, 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 the box of Legos in your head has to constantly be refilled if you're doing creative work. So... I think for us, the idea that flexibility can be managed, can be harnessed in new ways, the, the, the endless quest for new models from both agencies and clients is also to me interesting and an optimistic thing, not just my business <laughs> lives in that intersection to some degree, but also at least partially, but also because it means we're thinking about it. We're not just going, this is what we did last year. Let's do this this year. We're thinking about it. And partially it's in response to the fact that like all consultants, I'll say, change, it's never been so fast. There's been a lot of change. Have you noticed <laughs> that change recently? Oh, gosh. And within change comes opportunity. I can say that. So it's that kind of thing, right? The, the change is only, there are structural changes happening within the entire infrastructure of digital advertising that are very, very significant and determinant and will change a great deal of how the industry has operated for the last 10 years in its digital performance um, area. and that's such a big change. I think it will force people to think differently about all kinds of things. So that's probably a good thing. Um, I, I think we tend to, as people, as humans, but as an industry also, put off decisions that are really, really awkward and complicated and potentially expensive and, you know, not clear what the consequences are as long as we possibly can. Like, we really don't want to do those things. Like, it's just... but when certain things happen that force you to, a lot of innovation, evolution, growth, uh, and creativity are forced into the world. And I think that's probably going to be a good thing. I think there's a lot of truth in that. I'm sort of mentally running through the various agency chief execs we've worked with over the years. And I've got a particular fondness for those that haven't come from an advertising background, probably because of the reasons you've just talked about. So you know, reasons for optimism for the industry from your perspective. We're talking about the fact that the competition has never been broader. There's an opportunity for cross-pollination of talent from all sorts of different backgrounds, which are related, they're creative, but they're not necessarily so ingrained with the habits and beliefs um, and mindsets that, you know, a lot of agency people are, I'm going to use this word advisedly, afflicted with. Um, so there is uh, a necessity to embrace new models. And as you say, don't wait. Uh, and I guess if you're not encumbered by those kind of legacy perspectives, you are in a position to be more um, 
decisive um, in adapting to new things. And I think, again, the agencies that are in a position to not just simply look at incremental change and are minded to do something more transformational, even if that transformation is perceived to be relatively low risk, it's not dramatic, it's still something which can constitute pretty major cascade of change throughout the business and start to affect some of the challenges we've talked about in this conversation. For sure. Like we're all locked together in an ecosystem of partners, vendors, and so on, right? So you can't just change it by yourself. That's the problem. If you decide to start a new trading currency and no one adopts it, it doesn't make any difference to the marketplace, right? So like the creativity bit, and everyone says this, but no one does it in my opinion. Like the creativity thing should inform every level of what an agency does in every way. It should be everything even if you're not a creative agency because that designation is irritating, whatever. So at every level of thought, and that should be organizational, Mother has a decently interesting organizational structure, but most of them have the same exact one. It's not that interesting. It's not very creative. Accounting-wise, you build the same way, you, like it's all that stuff. I'm like, why can't we apply our creativity to each level of this business, including how you build business models, different kinds of business models, experiment with clients. We've tried this a lot and we mostly build project-based, deliverable-based stuff. Because we're a high sort of moved upstream consulting, outcome-based work doesn't make sense for us. We're trying to help things work better. And so we do a lot of surveys with different parts of the machines, agencies, clients, make sure that they're happier and that kind of stuff. So like we've tried to, we've tried to barter with clients before. We were like working with a big hotel brand, IHG. And I was like, well, we could take half our fee in hotel rooms because <laughs> that's useful to us. That's very useful commodity for us. Um, but they're like, that's just too hard for us to manage. Like it's again, internally, it's too complex for us to work out how to do that. It's easier just to pay you from the budget we've got. I'm like, well, that's, that's part of the challenge of innovation, isn't it? The systems don't allow for it. Exactly. Computer says no. It's funny. I mean, the, what you've just described is exactly the experience we have here. Again, we, we don't sell time. We never have done. Um, we do a lot of deliverable work. But we also do get into outcome based work as well. And, um, I think it's a whole other podcast discussion about payment by results, you know, skin in the game and the confusion that exists around those topics, uh, the things that need to be true in order to able to have a go at them. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot in there. So we'll, we'll leave that perhaps that one for another day. It is a big um, one. It's a challenging thing because yeah. yeah, skin in the game is definitely an interesting approach. It's hard for agencies to do it, but we've tried a few times. Like when I was in the MDC machine, we set up a, uh, with one of our clients, which is Vanguard, a big fund managing company in America, the world's biggest or second biggest fund manager. We set up a fund of all our publicly traded clients and use that fund as a way of, you know, accumulating the success of all of our clients over time and then made a portion of the bonus pool applicable to that market, that fund's growth and so on. That kind of thing, like trying to build co-ownership of success back into the partnership because otherwise it's quite hard. Hmm. How did it go? I mean, uh, like a lot of things agencies do, it's mostly a press release, unfortunately. But it's the nature of these things often that after that, the enthusiasm dwanes. Shame, shame. Yeah, it's not quite skin in the game for the client, is it? It's more of a PR exercise, but... Um, I mean, um, yeah, well... Good thought, though. Well, I mean, I think, yeah, it could be managed in a, in a better way, theoretically. But <laughs> I do think, to your point, that, that conversation about value and commerciality is... Um, Oh, there's one thing I was going to mention. Have you seen, have you ever seen the 1989 JWT account manager's guide for Kellogg's uh, team members? 
I have not. Tell me more. Oh my God, it's amazing. It's, I just written an article about it. I found it on my computer. I don't know how I got it. Um, it's basically telling, it's, it's, it's a 30 page onboarding document explaining what Kellogg's wants for its agencies. And it is very specific, extremely specific. It's, it's amazing. But it's also very conceptually amazing. It's like, we don't believe in in and out dip marketing. We believe in long-term brand investment. The consumer is at the center of everything we do. It's not on the box or on the TV. The consumer doesn't see it. We don't care. We expect from our agency to have the best people from every department. This best will be demonstrated by commitment to the business through what we call the Kellogg's attitude. You will bleed Kellogg's red. This is all in the document. It's amazing. And, um, and commercial results. And it also says things like, in all caps, the agency's success will be a direct reflection of the client's success in both billings and business. <laughs> it makes it very Perfect. clear how it works. It's like, it's just a deeply interesting cultural commercial document from before we had, I guess, PowerPoint. And so it's, yeah, it's fascinating. It really is. I want to go back. I want to find out who wrote it, who's read it, um, who signed off on it, who took it out of circulation and why. And, you know, there's so much that we could usefully go back to, uh, with that kind of mentality, right? There's some great stuff. If you remind me, I'll send it, I'll send it, I'll send it to you. I assume I don't have the copyright, so, but it's very interesting. Okay. It's very if, it's, if it's in the public domain, we'll put it in the show notes. I think it is. I can't find it online, but I definitely. <laughs> well, hang on. Let me, let me ring my lawyer before we do this. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Is I mean, there the a statute ca- of limitations on this? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I always think about this. I have a lot of artifacts that I collect from agencies. That's what I have done for 20 years. I try to only share things that are non-proprietary. This is because you don't have a house, Faris. If you were to Partially. move the house now and again, you'd be chucking all that crap in the skip. Well, no, they're all digital, but they're all, in, to, your, to your point, they're all in hard drives like in other houses now because they're so old at this point. But I just keep a constant trove of stuff that I need to read that I've not read sitting in my computer. And then sometimes I search it. Yeah. On that, on that beautiful note of never quite getting through all the things we're due to read. Um, Faris, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me, sir. Always a pleasure to chat. Sorry, my voice is a bit broken still. No worries. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening today. Hopefully you've got at least one really useful takeaway. If so, I'd love to hear from you. Connect with me, Robin Bond on LinkedIn, or drop me an email at robin.bon at codefinery.com. Now, it's podcast law that I compel you to subscribe to the show. So please do. And if you're happy to share this episode and help us reach a wider audience, thank you. I'll personally buy you a pint. Finally, if you're new to Codefinery, then here's the plug. We combine consulting sprints and executive coaching to help agencies like yours create your very own market of one. That means you can stand out, win more, and command a premium, all while attracting the best talent and really thriving in your role. So if you're curious to learn more, drop us a line by the link in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.